morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Steve Williamson here. Welcome to Democratic Perspective again. And sitting across from me today is co-host Karen McClellan. And we're going to be talking about a a topic, Karen, that I don't think many people address now, which is separation of church and state. It sort of goes under the radar, some of the issues. It does. It does. Uh, So who's our guest today? I think we're very pleased to have her. Um, our guest today is the um, CEO of an organization, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. That's you know one of the very active organizations in advocacy and you know legal work in this area. It's an organization that's composed of people both with various faiths and with no faith. Uh, the current executive director, Rachel Lasser, is a is a member of the Reformed Judaism congregation. She's also a lawyer. She's worked for the National Women's Law Center. She's worked on other sort of social justice issues, and you know feels that this is a really important issue. And they said, in that sense, this is an organization composed just to let people you know we know that you think of separation of church and state as just should somebody pray in school is the sort of the issue, but there's a lot of other things that revolve around this issue that we don't always think about. So we're going to um, let Rachel just tell us a, a brief bit about the organization and maybe why she decided it was so important to join this group. Yeah, good good, good morning. And Karen and Steve, thanks so much for having me on, on your show. It's so great to be with all of your listeners. Um, Americans United for Separation of Church and State has been around for almost 75 years. It'll be 75 in this coming year in 2022. We're a nonpartisan, not-for-profit educational and advocacy organization. And we bring together, like you were saying, Karen, people of all religions and none to protect the right of everyone to believe as they want and to stop anyone from using their beliefs to harm others. So we fight in the courts, in legislatures, in Congress, and in the public square for freedom without favor and equality without exception. And we are the preeminent organization working to ensure that religion and government remain separate and also that religious freedom remains a shield that protects all of us and doesn't turn into a sword that harms others. And I joined the group uh, four years ago um, and was am really proud to lead it as the first woman leader and the first non-Christian leader. As you said, I'm I'm Jewish. I'm a Reformed Jew. I actually have worked in the Reformed Jewish uh, denomination and movement as the deputy director of the Social Action Group. Um, and I appreciate the issue because I understand that it is so important to freeing us to come together as equals and to building a stronger democracy. I have spent my career fighting for a more inclusive America because I think that's what our Constitution is about. And as a religious minority, I obviously feel this issue very strongly. I know that it enables me to send my kids to public school as I have um, and that they won't be taught a religion or that they're not supposed to be taught a religion that that is different from ours, um, that I could 
apply for a government job and get one um, and be treated sort of equally in that process. And frankly, that I'm free and safe to worship, you know, as I choose in this society. So I am a huge fan of church-state separation, and I'm on a mission to make sure that other people, the many potential allies that we have, understand and value it more. I, I would remind folks that the Constitution, which is is the basis, the establishment cause of the Constitution, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise of, and the clause has a bunch of other freedoms too. Um, that's how the, the Constitution is very spare. And I just remind folks that the, the, the original Constitution is only about 4,500 words, which is less than most short stories. And the, with all the 27 amendments, it's, really, it's still um, about 7,500 words long. So it's a very short document. It's very general. It's about principles and stuff. And this is where we start. Right, Rachel, and on on when no no law respecting the establishment of religion, that's not preferring one religion over another. Is that right? That's exactly right. And you know, the Constitution doesn't mention God or Jesus um, anywhere, right? In fact, it only mentions religion three times. And you just named two of them, right? So one of the times is in the free exercise clause. The other time is in, in the non-establishment clause, saying that the government can't establish a religion. And the third time is in Article 6 that prohibits any religious test for public office. And that is it. Um, Thomas Jefferson, uh, who authored the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, which is often seen by historians as the basis for the First Amendment, um, was a, a, a real defender of everybody's religious freedom, um, and that was very important to him. In fact, he, he said about the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom that it was meant to protect the Jew and the Gentile, the Mohammedan and the Hindu, and the infidel of every faith. And he was so proud of having drafted the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom that it's actually one of the three things that appears on his grave epitaph. Epitaph, And he doesn't even include having been president. (laughs) (laughs) But he includes being the author of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. And, you know, back then, uh, Steve and Karen, you know, folks like Thomas Jefferson understood how divisive the, the issue could be if they weren't protecting everyone's religious freedom and that people could even be killed. And, you know, back in the time of the colonies, unfortunately, there were prescriptions around religion. And, you know, you had to attend in certain colonies the Anglican Church on Sunday. And if you didn't, it was found to be one of the most prosecuted crimes. Um, you know, so so back then, I think even for the sake of of unity and sort of unifying our new nation, our, our founding fathers understood how important it was to protect religious freedom for all. I think that's a great point. I, I always suggest people read the uh, text for the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom that forms the basis of the, the clause in the Constitution. And as you point out, it has two parts. We call the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. It's sort of broken down into two aspects of the same same issue, right, Karen? Yeah, they're the same things, and they're things we've, you know, 
been talking about for a couple hundred years that never quite seemed to go away. It always you know, seems amazing on this issue. The Supreme Court has weighed in on certain parts of this issue a number of times over the years about you know, keeping religion out of sort of government operations or keeping it available to people. But we seem to see the same kinds of violations, the same kinds of issues arise continually, which is always somewhat surprising to me when I've, you know, been a member of the organi- your organization for quite a while when I read you know your newsletter and every single issue you've got is basically the same story. The names are changed, but it's the same kinds of issues where uh, people are prohibited from adopting or getting involved in the foster care system hey. because of a religion or uh, there's a, a public sort of display of religion in a school. And it seems I've never quite what it is that makes this so hard for organization, you know, governmental entities sometimes to understand that this is pretty simple. I think two majorities of a religion, like I come from Oklahoma, where the I guess the majority religion in my hometown was Baptist. It was very hard to understand um, a lot of the stuff that they did. If you're Catholic, it really went went Mm -hmm. against things. We were prohibited from joining social private organizations because if you have a private organization, you can have, uh, you know, if you have a. Is this Islamic organization? I, you can forbid non-Islamic people from joining, right? Because the purpose of it is one thing. That's a private organization. We're talking about where it moves into the public sphere, right, Rachel? Exactly. Yes, we are talking about the separation of religion and government. And I think that's a really important point, Steve, because there's nothing anti-religion about it. In fact, what the founders also understood and what is just true is that it protects religion from the government co-opting it or interfering with it right you know who wants the government to be dictating what you need to preach in order to receive a government grant or religion to be bending to it and in fact it's through religion having to compete for private dollars that religion evolves and and becomes stronger so in america which has religious freedom we actually have one of the most religious populations in the world and in countries where where the state is religious those countries tend to have less religious people on whole like a lot of countries in europe for example um and that's been studied by by scholars and and written about so it's actually to protect religion as much as as it is to protect the non-religious and you know a lot of people don't know this but the founders of our cause of, of, and our organization 75 years ago were predominantly people of faith. Um, they were actually a group of Methodist ministers back in the late 1940s from my hometown in Chicago who came together with uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and Freemasons and um, people of many different faiths at that time, dean, deans of seminaries to protect what they were worried about, which was the government interfering with their own religion as well. So I think that's, that's a super important point, and I'm really proud that at my organization, at Americans United, we bring together every day in briefs to the Supreme Court, in letters to the Arizona State Legislature and to Congress, people from different faith denominations and the non-religious to stand up for everybody's religious freedom. 
I think that the most important thing I get from the Constitution, this very short little clause, is that no religion can be preferred by the government over another no. religion, right? That's you, right? You can't prefer right. Christ, Christianity over uh, Judaism or something like that. Right, but isn't it uh, sort of revealing that we're fighting a battle on this when, you know, Donald Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, just just in the, the past day said, quote, if we're if we're going to have one nation under God, which we must, we have to have one religion to a group in Texas he was speaking to. And that's really what we're up against. And what I think folks don't understand today is let me, let me put it like this. Many people think, sure, I'm a fan of church state separation. And overall, I believe in religious freedom. But that's something that was settled in the late 1700s. In our, you know, in our Constitution and our founding papers, and I don't need to worry about that. But I think the point that we're trying to make today is, but you do, because uh, as Karen was saying, a lot of the fundamental protections that have existed for decades in the courts are now being undone by an extremely ultra-conservative Supreme Court, and frankly, uh, uh, courts throughout the country, lower courts that have. Um, quite conservative judges that were put on in part because of their their uh, vitriol around church state separation. And lots so of we, these, we have a problem. these uh, you know, legal cases on some things recently revolve around small things that everybody sort of agrees with and don't always understand that they really represent something larger, whether a, a the one issue in uh, Missouri, I think it was, where a, uh, a church preschool applied for a grant that was available to uh, resurface its playground to make it safer. And there was an issue there. They were initially turned down because they were a religious organization, not a public school. And you know, the courts finally said, well, they you know that they could apply for this. And so there's little, things, right. little things like that where the issue sounds minor. You know, we want, to, we want children to be safe. You know, it's a minor sort of thing. Why shouldn't all, every playground have a safe surface for children to play on? And, but if they, you know, then it leads on to things. And a lot of these, some of these issues for a long time didn't reach the sort of Supreme Court level. And we hear about, you know, the, the more local, local levels that you hear consistently. I, you know, every, every, you know, every month you see an article somewhere about a, a school somewhere where the football coach or the principal reads Christian generally prayers. You know, before a football game or over the loudspeaker, despite the fact that those have sort of been prohibited by the Supreme Court since, you know, the early 60s. But they don't ever seem to go away. And the people who who do this when this happens are generally completely ignorant of the fact that the Supreme Court ever said anything about school and prayer. That's yeah. right. That's exactly yeah. right. And so we're really lucky at Americans United because we have such wonderful supporters to have a legal department that feels hundreds of complaints that people file across the country and they're predominantly frankly about prayer in public schools even though you know that's been decided definitively by the supreme court since the 1960s that that's a violation of church state separation and you know we get um we get numerous complaints in fact we got a complaint from arizona um just last year that there was a a meeting and i and i can actually tell you the Give me a minute. I guess it was in, and forgive me, I'm probably going to mispronounce it. It was in, let's see, the the Arizona 
Winslow Unified School District number one, yeah. um, where there were uh, there was a back to school meeting for for teachers and um, and Christian eight Christian pastors were invited to that meeting. Teachers had to raise their hands if they believe in God and um, and there there were many biblical verses that were being cited and we got a host of complaints from teachers. So Americans United wrote a letter to the school district, a legal letter, explaining that that was a violation of church-state separation. This was a public school. And uh, the school district apologized the next day and said that they wouldn't do it again. So that's the kind of thing that, that we are able to do before we even have to go to court, which is great, where we can address these violations. That said... Um, we're, we're awfully concerned about what the Supreme Court is, is set to undo this term. They haven't accepted this case yet, but this is one of our cases. It involves the Bremerton School District in Washington State and a coach by the name of Kennedy who insists on praying with his public school football player team at the 50-yard line after every game. And the lower courts have found that this is a violation of church-state separation. The courts long ago, right, understood that sort of praying to play is, is, is coercing students, really, and, and, and a violation of, of students' religious freedom. But every sign is that it's already been petitioned, and every sign is that the Supreme Court is going to accept this case, which isn't a good thing. So right now we're really dealing with uh, a lot of... Uh, precedent that we have established for so long in this country that could be overturned um, by a court that is really the most favorable to, to, to religion in, in decades. I don't know if, if you all saw, this was um, back in the spring, Adam Litvak, who writes for the New York Times, reported on a, on a study out of University of Chicago, by University of Chicago and, and Washington University professors. And they found that, like, under the Chief Justice Earl Warren Court from 1953 to 1969, it supported religion just 46% of the time. But under the Chief Justice Roberts Court of today, it supports religion 81% of the time. And the kinds of cases the court is hearing have changed also. So in the back in the Warren court days, all of the rulings in favor of religion benefited minority or dissenting practitioners. But today, in the Roberts court, most of the religious claims are being brought by mainstream Christians. So we're we're in a in our in a period where the highest court in our land is actually undoing a lot of the protections that our constitution has established for and that have been in place for so many decades. It seems that, yes, some of these and, and not uh, on some other issues as well, it's sort of a rollback of the idea that, you know, the majority should not be able to dictate to the minority, you know, who those majority minority are very case to case. But there is this sort of see, a rollback of the <laughs> idea them, that that minorities uh, should be treated the same as the majority and that there shouldn't, you know, and that's mm-hmm. what and sort of we all believe that in the sort of the 60s, but it does seem to be changing on the legal side. And some of the justices are, are conservative and ideologically. It's not that they're religion, they're, they're religious. Uh, it's that there are, um, they want to push forward their religion and religious rights. Um, if you spoke about uh, uh, prayer at football games uh, back 
decades and decades and decades ago at Oklahoma State mm-hmm. University, one of the controversies we were in engaged in was prayer at football game. And I believe it was a Presbyterian minister came to a group of us sort of liberal types and said, they shouldn't be praying at a football game. It's inappropriate. You guys should do something about it. So we tried to do something about it, which, of course, didn't work in those days. And one day we came home to our uh, uh, house that we had rented and the glass in the window was broken and there was an arrow sticking in the couch. <laughs> so, oh. so it started, it, it sets off really, um, deep feelings and the, the objections actually originally came from very religious people who were disturbed by the kill, kill, kill ranting and, and stuff at football games, which is lots of fun. But it was inappropriate to have a prayer in that context, and so uh, uh, these fights are sort of perennial, and uh, and they yeah. don't go away very easily. They really are. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that, Steve, though, because the truth is that um, it's dangerous to uh, to sort of stand up for for the constitutional principle of church-state separation in, in too many parts of this country today, and that's not because. We don't have the majority with us. We did polling this year, and it's very clear. So did Pew, by the way, that the majority of Americans believe in church-state separation, think it's important, don't think America is a Christian nation, right? We've got the numbers with us, but our opponents can actually be be dangerous. When I started at Americans United, I got a series of death threats, had to warn my kids to be careful around the house. Um, when, you know, when we've represented plaintiffs in the past, they've had bricks thrown through their windows. They've had awful things happen, like their parakeet beheaded and really <laughs> gruesome things have happened to them. And I know that, you know, uh, for some of our atheist members as well around the country, it's dangerous to come out as an atheist. And that's not an America that's making good on its promise of religious freedom. So I'm glad that you brought that out, Steve, because the truth is that still today there can be a real danger for those of us who are speaking up in support of church-state separation. And that's not that's not acceptable, right? That's not acceptable, and that's not in line with our democracy. Yeah, and so it's, it's uh, we're worth, in trouble. worth noting that your organization and similar ones, generally it's someone in the community that will come to you and say, this is happening this happened to me at a government agency. I, this happened at my school. And lots of times there's even students coming forward. They, they see on, on sort of sometimes the, the, you know, the reaction to this is it's some governmental amorphous right, you know, left-wing group. But this is actually people in the community who feel strongly enough to risk the kind of things you've talked about to come forward and say it's not right what's happening in my community. It's not That's right so what right. happened to me when I went to become a foster parent. And it's it's not the these law these cases that work their way up to the Supreme Court aren't started. It's not your your organization isn't out there looking for cases. They're started by actual people in the community who feel strongly enough that they need to make a stand on this and they need to let people know about it. Yeah. It really is oppressive to have somebody else's religion or lack of religion pushed on you. And um when you're my religious minority, like I was when I was very young in a, in a community, uh, it, it's it, you have to draw the line with the governmental I- interference because the government needs to protect 
minorities in those situations. Otherwise, the majority just kind of roll over you and they don't even know that they're doing it, at least in my estimation. They think what they're doing is just normal and fine. But what that's they're really so true. Do, go ahead, Rachel. Well, yeah, no, I'm sorry to interrupt, Steve. I think that's just such an important point that often we're all sort of multifaceted in our identities and we all have aspects of our identities that are part of a majority and aspects of our identities that are part of a minority. And when we are in a majority, um, we can really not see or understand the ways that we're acting that can be exclusive. Um, and, and so I think that, that that does happen very often. And I think, you know, um, we have a plaintiff um, in a case, Amy Madonna is her name, so that the lawsuit is, is funny enough called Madonna versus HHS. Um, and she's a Catholic woman in the South, in South Carolina, Simpsonville, who, again, is brave enough to be speaking up. She's, she's come to us. She wanted to foster kids in the local foster care agency that is funded with her own taxpayer dollars. <laughs> but the agency put her through a rigorous application process. She passed it with flying colors. She's a wonderful woman who is the mother of two autistic kids that she homeschools and grew up with foster siblings. And at the very end of the process, they asked her, uh, what's the name of your church? Um, and she told them the name of her Catholic parish. And they said, oh, we're sorry. Um, we don't work with Catholics. We just work with evangelical Protestants. Wow. So, you know, so these are real people around the country who, who are part of minorities in their communities, to your point, these you know, I'm Jewish, so I'm pretty much always a minority, no matter what the community. Um, but, you know, but they're but but all of us in a in an ever changing America where we've invited in uh, sort of diversity, right? And people from all shores, the religious pluralism in this country is 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 alive and thriving and the demographics are changing. So it's it's a fact that any of us could be part of a religious minority at any time where our children in the future, and that if we want to protect our own children and our own religious freedom, we better go to bat for people who are currently religious minorities in this country. What's the biggest threat now, uh, Rachel, to the separation of church and state? What is, is there a singular threat, or is it multiple, or uh, from the, your legal cases and so forth and so on, what do you get as the biggest problem in the, with the separation of church and state? I think a lot of folks on, on the right, but maybe on the left, really want to challenge the whole idea. Yeah, I mean, I would say sort of there's two answers to that, Steve. One is that there is this this movement to change the meaning of religious freedom and turn it into religious privilege just for one narrow set of religious beliefs. And we know that that's not really religious freedom. That's religious privilege. But that, you know, there are those who are just intent on using it really to advance a conservative political agenda and in that regard, to give privilege just to one narrow type of, of Christianity today, and there are plenty of Christians who wouldn't agree with it, um, that, that seeks to kind of maintain current power structures in our society and not to allow for social progress. So I'd say that's one of really the, the greatest, one way to characterize one of the greatest threats to church-state separation. And another way to characterize it is really a, a very thriving and emboldened Christian nationalist movement in this country today. 
um, again, you know, we've talked about these changing demographics in this country and it's creating a fear and a backlash. And, and I understand where that backlash is coming from, but it's really operating to the disadvantage of all of us in the long run, right? Today they come for me, tomorrow they come for you. That's what our Catholic plaintiff, Amy Madonna, actually said when she was interviewed by the Associated Press. So that, you know, in 2014 in America, we stopped being a majority white and Christian country. We're still a majority Christian, but we're no longer a majority white and Christian. And of course, you know, it's predicted that what sometime in the 2040s, we're no longer going to be majority white. So I think it's fair to say that there's a real fear um, among those who traditionally held the sort of power in our country about what's to come. And unfortunately, in more extreme circles, that's creating, you know, a, a religious extremism and a, a Christian nationalism that's intent on preserving white and Christian power. And, and I think that's a real threat today that we're seeing, you know, black churches aren't invited into Christian privilege, right? They're being attacked. Like yeah, we've seen the, with the, proud the Christian nationalism idea and the sort of theocratic ideal society sort of merge with the Republican Party in a lot of places. It's, you know, it's in, sort of it's become a sort of a political mantra that was is much more overt than it was in the past. You know, that there exactly are right. elect, elected elected officials in various places who talk about this and but, talk about that as, as what their their view of the ideal society is a, a theocratic a Christian theocratic society with a some some variety of sort of a evangelical Protestant base, you know, looking at whether whether they're talking about biblical law or other aspects and the continued idea that pops up that all of our law is based upon the Ten Commandments, which is only really covers one part of our sort of civil law, which is you know, thou shalt not kill, which is common to every single society in the whole world probably throughout time that's not a specifically a, a you know connected to one religion that's just living in the world but we've seen a lot more of this sort of idea that that's the basis for our law and that's what it should be in some ways it it rachel shouldn't conservatives be as much on board separation of church and state as as liberals or progressives or moderates they absolutely should and they were so back in the 1980s Americans United's members were actually over a half Republican. Um, and that's definitely not true anymore, but it should be because church-state separation and religious freedom is like apple pie in this country. It should be, It's in the DNA of what a democracy needs in order to thrive. It's like oxygen to fire. Well, and, part of, and part of this is just sort of a complete misunderstanding sometimes of the founding. We're coming up you know, on Thanksgiving where people celebrate the pilgrims and their first Thanksgiving without thinking about the fact that that group of people came because they felt they were persecuted because they couldn't you know, practice their specific version of religion. And they came in their, the towns that they created. You had to be a member of their specific church and follow all of their church rules or you weren't welcome. That's exactly right. And, you know, yeah. one interesting equivalent to that today are Latinos. So hear me out on this one. We did this poll that I referenced earlier this year. And one of the findings that was really interesting was that sort of first among every demographic in terms of supporting church-state separation were college-educated Latinos. And I think one of the reasons why we did some focus groups, too, is that 
so many more Latinos are closer to the immigration experience and to coming from countries where there isn't church-state separation. And therefore, they don't take it for granted, right? They really value and understand the role that it's playing in America. They understand that if it weren't for church-state separation, there wouldn't be reproductive freedom. If it weren't for church-state separation, their lesbian sister wouldn't have the same rights as they do today in this country. Even if it weren't for church-state separation, that there would be oppression of all different communities, really, in the name of religion. And so I think it's fair to say that when people think about church-state separation going away, right, which is an advantage that our founders had because they were closer to that experience, that they value it more. So we need to remind people of what this country would look like without true church-state separation. Yeah, the uh, whole context of all the things you see from Jefferson and and the Constitution is the religious wars in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, was a time in Germany, fairly recent time, where if you were living in a principality before Germany got completely put together, and uh, you were a Protestant and your new prince was a Catholic, you had to change your religion. People had to change their religion back and forth, depending on who ran the uh, the, uh, the little country. So uh, the wars and conflicts were, were the background of this. And we've avoided that kind of conflict in this country. And so it's disturbing to see the the Christian very far right and, and dominationist because they're waging a kind of uh, a guerrilla warfare against our our rights to have a religion or not a religion, depending on what we decide. That's that's true. And, you know, isn't it interesting, Steve, if you think about it, that our religious identities are so important to us that across history, so many people are willing to die even in order to preserve them. I mean, this is truly a human right. You know, and it's something that is just so essential to people, people's identities. So I think, you know, people forget that, that, that type of division is, is actually dangerous. People forget that if their churches and synagogues and mosques were going to be overtly political, which the Johnson Amendment actually bans them from doing, that it would cause division ultimately within their houses of worship. And who wants that? You know, who who attends services in order to experience even more division? You know, you go there for comedy and unity, right? So that there are a lot of folks in this country who I think if you it's sort of like a scratch and sniff situation, right? You know, those scratch and sniffs where you have to kind of scratch in order to smell that nice scent. You know, certainly that there were a lot of those back when I was a kid. And I think there are a lot of people in this country who if you just scratched a little on the surface, they would smell um, the beautiful scent of religious freedom and really understand it again, but they they need to kind of be reminded. And let me just put in one plug for folks to visit our website at auforamericansunited.org. And you can become a member um, just for $35. You become a member, you get a magazine, um, paper, hard copy magazine, if you can remember what that looks like. That's edited by our amazing Rob Boston, sent to you every month. That's really informative, and it, it has a personal column by me in it every month. And um, we'll keep you up to speed. The website au.org 
also has uh, a bunch of Know Your Rights guides for public school students, teachers, and parents that are really broken down and very user-friendly so you can understand what your religious freedom rights really are in public schools. And it also, right at the top, has a button for filing a claim, like we were talking about earlier, Karen, um, so that if you see any violation happening in your community at all, or even if you're not sure if it's a violation and you're sort of feeling not right about it, you can write to us and we'll look into it and take care of it, you know, if it is a, if it is a violation. And so many so. of these violations, I know from reading things from your organization and other groups, when you somebody makes the complaint and you send a letter to the organization, many times the issue will cease at that point because the person who was doing it was honestly didn't understand the issue, didn't understand where the law was. Unfortunately, we're, exactly you know, right. a lot of us that's are pretty exactly legally right. you know, illiterate in the United States. I should say that Karen is sitting here with a copy the, of your the magazine, <laughs> the physical, the, the physical magazine the right in front week, of her. Yeah. She's a subscriber. That's awesome, Karen. Yeah, I've love been, you. Yeah, as I said, I've been that's reading great. this one for years. It does get like on this and on some other issues, it does get sometimes, you know, sort of frustrating when you hear about an issue in, in Alabama and a month later you hear about the same issue in New York and yeah. you know, mm-hmm. other places. It's, it's, you know, we've seen that on, on looking at laws around the country. You know, one state passes a law and some court says that's unconstitutional and you turn around and suddenly another state is passing the same law even though a court already said it was unconstitutional on lots of issues. So it's, sometimes it feels like people sort of feel, well, we're, we're not one country. We're 50 50 states, we can all you know, do what we want to. And can I go back to yeah. the, uh, the case that Karen was talking about where um, the, it was decided it was okay for the government to help with a uh, preschool playground, even mm-hmm. though it was a religious school. How does that play out? Uh, what's public, what's uh, religious, and what's non-religious in terms of what the government can do to with um, religious groups and and uh, foundations? Yeah, so that case is called Trinity Lutheran, um, and you're remembering it correctly. And what the court found, there was sort of wordsmithing here, is that you couldn't exclude an applicant based on their um, religious identity. So the court didn't go all the way and say that the government had to fund a religion, but they said, you know, you couldn't exclude someone based on their religious identity. Today, however... We're, we're facing a potential greater threat. There's a case before the court right now that they've already accepted for this term. It's called Carson v. Macon, and it comes out of Maine. And it is the question that's before the court is whether a state can be forced to fund religious education specifically. So specifically religious activity. It's hard to believe it's, it's happening because in Maine, there's a lot of there's public school districts, uh, rural ones, where there just aren't public schools around. Yeah, that was good. So, so, yeah, lots of these things come out of specific local issues, and then they become sort of national, even though the initial issue was something that wouldn't happen in most places. What's oh, the danger absolutely. here, Rachel and Karen? Yeah. Say it again, Steve? What's the danger here? Why is this one so dangerous, you think? What's dangerous is, is the precedent that would be, be set by saying that the government can directly fund religious education. That is about as antithetical to religious freedom. Think about it. That means that taxpayers 
of all different religious beliefs and none are now going to be forced to fund a particular set of religious beliefs. And even more so, a lot of religious schools, not all, but a lot of religious schools discriminate, right? They discriminate against LGBTQ students and families. They discriminate against kids with disabilities. They certainly don't allow students of different religious beliefs to come uh, to their schools. And, you know, sometimes they they even discriminate against, you know, let's say a, a student who becomes pregnant or a teacher who becomes pregnant out of wedlock. So that means taxpayers are having to fund religious beliefs that aren't their own and fund discrimination. And that is a direct violation of church-state separation. Think about the precedent that that sets across our country. Extremely dangerous. Well, just, you know, um, we're sort of coming up to the, getting on to the end of the time. Um, we're so glad you could join us. Any specific sort of, you know, call to action for people who've listened to this and want to do something that you can say in one minute? Yes. Uh, <laughs> or join two and a half AU minutes. Yeah. <laughs> at au.org and we'll plug you in. So au.org. And also take the issue of church state separation to all the groups that you're a part of, whether it's your house of worship, uh, your, your, LGBTQ group, your community group, mention it, right? And don't take for granted that people understand the threat that the issue's under. Bring it to the fore. Make it part of everyone's consciousness. Well, thank you so much for being uh, with us. We've got a few announcements. Democrats of the Red Rocks has a uh, breakfast on Thursday. It's a still They're still doing Zoom, and it's about misinformation, and disinformation. And I can't think of anything more important to address than those issues. They're not just national issues. It's not just issues taking place in, uh, in, uh, the national consciousness in Washington or something. We have those issues right here in Sedona. We have a massive amounts of misinformation and disinformation on social media. So I think it's important that, uh, people check out the, the door breakfast. And also visit the door website. Um, it's a great place to find out what's going on politically uh, uh, in the in uh, our area. I'd also like to thank the Yavapai uh, County Democrats for their support. We really appreciate it. And El Portal, a great pet-friendly <laughs> hotel. All these uh, groups have supported us. Um, we're in a bit of a financial difficulty now, so we have a little uh, button you can press on our webpage that you can donate right online. It's very easy to use. We would appreciate your support. Uh, we've been on the air for 10 years. We'd like to stay on the air for 11 years. <laughs> yeah, and that donate button does have a donate monthly, so if you... You know, you don't feel really rich. You can, you know, donate and give us ten bucks a month, five bucks a month. Every every little bit helps in paying for the cost of of the time for the radio show on the air because that is a monthly or a weekly cost. And we we do have to buy the radio time, yeah. folks. It, people think we're we're uh, and that's our major expense and really our only expense uh, except for our you know our bank account mm-hmm. and our uh, post office box is is paying for radio time. And we need your folks' support. We have to pay for the radio time up front every month before we even start talking. So I'd like to thank everybody for being with us. Karen, you got any last thoughts? You've got 30 seconds. 30, 
Uh, no, just please donate. And remember, every one of these shows can be downloaded from the website or your favorite place to get podcasts like Google Podcasts. If you miss a show, you can always download it and listen to it later. And you can go back through the whole 10 years worth of shows and listen to them all again. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you for being with us. The It's vvid.org. You can find all our websites there. I mean, all our uh, podcasts there. We have a new Facebook page, which we're working on, which I think uh, you can comment on directly. Uh, we had people tell us they're coming into the area and they're Democrats and they want to know what's happening. So um, that's a good way to stay in touch. You can be in contact with us. You can text us. Thank you very much, folks. See you next week. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.